0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different women come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of Acts and what it teaches us about all Jesus continues to do through his church and in his kingdom. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining me in conversation today are Mallory Click and Ann Morris. Unfortunately, Vanessa is unable to join us today. I know we're going to miss her, but y'all, I sure have been looking forward to a conversation with the two of y'all. And what's fun is that the two of you are not strangers to one another. You've known each other for quite a while. So Anne, as our elder stateswoman, tell us a little bit about how you and Mallory know one another. Oh,
1: I have had the delight of watching Mallory grow up. I probably met you when you were maybe second grade, and I was her mom's teacher's aide in first grade. Such fun days to get to just help that teacher do all that she was doing so fun i've watched mallory play soccer i watched her be a cheerleader uh, one of my favorite memories mallory is when you were in a musical i don't know which one it was but she were a little bird in a cage and you were so adorable and i thought they need to plan a musical just for mallory to perform
2: i don't think they ever did that though
0: so, did they ever perform, then, did they do a musical just for you to perform,
2: Valerie? <laughs> no, that probably would not have been a good idea. <laughs> but I have a lot of good memories on stage. Those were some fun musicals and um, definitely a sweet relationship. I loved watching you and my mom work together. And also in high school, just getting really close to Rebecca, developing a friendship with your, your youngest. And, and then still now um, being able to catch up with her and, and see her as a mom now. So this has been a sweet relationship. It has
1: been sweet. Very thankful to get to see you today and sit at a table with you.
2: Yes,
0: absolutely. Me I too. wish our listeners could see y'all smile at one another because <laughs> you've got to <laughs> capture the smiles. Um, and I know what it's like to have family friends who have been friends all throughout your life that have known you from the time you were young to the time you grow up. And what a, a dear gift that is. It's, it's a sweet thing. All right, y'all, we're going to start off our Episode today with our first things first question, like we usually do. So, I'm going to ask you a first and you're going to respond, and you're also going to give a brief introduction to yourself. And our question is, When was the first time you remember building a snowman? And I'm asking that because it's still January, and I have hopes that this Friday we're going to get some snow. We'll see.
2: Yes. So, I'm Mallory Click, and I'm married to Josh Click, and we have three boys. I am currently a stay at home mom. But before having Jackson, I was an elementary school teacher, so I taught pre-K and kindergarten and first grade, so the little ones. And hobbies, things that I love to do, I really enjoy being outside, so our family's pretty active. We spend a lot of time outside um, hiking or kayaking or walking, anything outside, really, and, and traveling, too. So I couldn't quite remember the first time I built a snowman, but I... I do have a lot of sweet memories um, when it actually did snow in Augusta growing up, which was not very often. Um, And one of those was, um, and actually my mom sent me a video to help kind of trigger some memories. But in 1999, it snowed in Augusta. And so I was nine years old. And in this video, you can see um, the house I grew up in. And actually, we grew up close to my grandparents' house. So Nina and granddaddy lived down the street and my cousins lived around the corner. We had a really close family, so we lived close together. And you can see us in the front yard of Nina and Granddaddy's house, sledding down the hill with my cousins. And so it just brought back a lot of really sweet memories. Nina um, and Granny were a big part of my life growing up. And just so much of who they are helped shape who I am, too. So it was just some sweet memories to, to think about.
0: That's a lot of fun. That sliding down a big hill, especially when you live in Augusta, Georgia, that comes around every very few years. That's a lot of fun. What about you, Ann? That,
1: that is so true. Something about snow is, I, I think it's magical. God just makes a beautiful world when he covers it in white. And snow is one of my most favorite things that he has created. I get to be married to Byron Morris. There are three Byron Morrises now, but I, I have Byron the first, and we have five children and 16 grandchildren. So my Byron says that my hobby is my Mm -hmm. grandchildren. That uh, kind of takes what time I have. It's fun to get to be with them. And I don't remember my first snowman, but I think I remember the last one. I don't remember what year it was, but we had enough snow to accumulate and you can imagine this 60-year-old woman outside making tiny little snow women and putting them on a brick wall out in our yard and decorating them with flowers or little berries, taking darling pictures of them to make note cards. Well, the pictures got taken, but the note cards have not been made yet. So, but that's a desire of mine. They would make darling little note cards. Anne,
0: I love the fact that you made snow women and, and, and that you decorated them up and you took pictures of them. That is not something I have thought of before. And I think that's, uh, that's very appropriate to you, Anne. I love it. I might send you one if I it, it ever make, gets made into a card. How many years ago did a you a picture? I don't remember that last okay. snow when that was. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the last time it snowed enough. The boys and I were trying to remember that the other night, the last time it snowed enough to actually make a snowman. And it's been over three years. I think it's been over three years. Yes. I think know, my so boys too. have few and poignant memories of the snow. Same way, probably, as y'all, because they grew up in Augusta. Mm-hmm. But I have a lot of memories of the snow because I grew up in Indiana. And it snowed all the time. So we, you, you made a snowman. That's what you did. I was telling my boys the other night that we made snow forts, you know, those big blocks of snow and you pour water on them and you make these big bricks and you make this snow cave. They were fascinated by the fact that you could do something like that. And we would make a lot of snowmen. And what I remember about a snowman in my yard is that it always had one of our many wool scarves around its neck. That was the signature of a good snowman. And it was also the sign of when the snowman's time had come to an end, because the space between the snowman's neck, well, it's the snowman's head, actually, and the snowman's knee were covered by the scarf. Instead of the space, obviously, between its shoulders and its head being covered by the scarf, it had sunk all the way down onto itself. And that little scarf was just holding those two separate parts together. And you think, yeah, that's the end of Frosty. That's about all he has to offer us. That's a little bit of the disappointment about snowmen. I feel they're so transient. They last for a little bit, then they go away. But today we're going to be talking about something that is anything but temporary and transient. Today we're going to be talking about God's longstanding redemptive plan as communicated to us in Acts chapter 7, verses 20 through 40. By a martyr named Stephen. Now, if you're listening and you haven't yet read this passage, I really encourage you to hit the pause button and read it. Our conversation around the table today will be so much more beneficial to you if you're familiar with the text. On our last episode of this podcast, we talked from Acts chapters 3 and 5, and we left the text at the point where Peter and John had just been beaten by the religious rulers of the day in an attempt to prevent them speaking of Jesus they left that beating rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And the gospel continued spreading like wildfire throughout Jerusalem, despite the increasingly violent attempts by the religious authorities to stamp it out. Now, Stephen now in our passage for today, Stephen's standing before those same authorities and they're demanding to know just what he believes about the law of Moses and the temple that they're standing in. So it's in this place before these leaders who have beaten friends of his who are very much antagonistic to the news about Jesus that Stephen is standing and proclaiming the truth about God's redemptive plan. And what I love is he starts what he's about to say, brothers and fathers, as if he is reaching out to those that he knows he's connected to, those he knows he cares about. He's reaching out in love, and he's going to speak to them about something that the Lord has to offer them. He's talking to them about salvation and how it comes through Jesus alone, and that God's redemptive plan from the beginning of time has always been centered around Jesus, that the whole story, Old Testament all the way to where they were today. And now we know New Testament, it's all telling one story of God's grand redemptive plan through Jesus. And that's what Stephen is explaining here. And he's saying there's nothing in all of history that can conquer this redemption that God has through Christ that shows itself to be a powerful reality. And the fact that that was true when Stephen was speaking then means that it's true today, that that powerful redemptive power towards us is unstoppable. And it's one thing to say that, but it's a whole nother thing to really comprehend. Do I believe that? And I think sometimes our own sin or the sin of other people really cause us to doubt that. Have y'all ever felt that your sin or the sin of someone else towards you has caused you to think that God has stopped fulfilling his promises to be your God? And if you can't think of one of those times, can you then think of something that the Lord did that convinced you that no, God can and will fulfill his promises to me. And what caused you to gain that type of assurance? That is such a deep question. And I just
1: first of all, I think, what what is sin? And and you think that sin is the biggies, the things that destroy lives, that wreck families. No, in verse forty one, Stephen talks about God's people rejoicing in the works of their hands. And that was sin. Those are sins that I don't think about. And it was a warning to me. And what is sin in your life? I want to rejoice in the works of my hand. I want to have something to feel proud about that I did well. And I want something to offer to God instead of, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's all what He has done for you. So this was a, a really a question that stopped me to start thinking about, what is sin and, and where is it in your life? Um, I, I know that sin cannot get me out of God's family, that I am His daughter, and he will never, ever take me out of his family. But I also realized that... If I am callous towards sin in my life, it can ruin my relationship with him for sure. And, and it can ruin my relationship with other people. So it doesn't stop his redemptive work, but it can make
0: life really messy and um, not enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. It can't. In those times when you have experienced, and you say ruin your relationship, and I know you don't mean uh, disconnect that relationship or cut that relationship off. Like you said, you know that you'll never be taken out of his family, but you know that you're experiencing something that has tarnished uh, that relationship that you have with him. When you're in that place and you realize it, what are some of the things that the Lord does that draws you back, that assures you, I am still Working despite that part of you that would turn to maybe the works of your ha- own hands or something along those lines. How is it that the Lord, in a sense, grabs your attention, grabs your heart, pulls you back? His kindness, uh-huh. His
1: kindness, and just it's almost like coming to your senses that wait a minute, you are not enjoying what is there for you to enjoy. Why not? You know, In Hebrews, when it speaks of Moses, sin is spoken about that it is pleasurable, but it's very fleeting in its pleasure. So maybe I get grumpy with God about something, and I just want to pout for a while and not enter into the closeness with him again. It's not fun, but it is a pleasure that I want for a little while, but he, he's the one that draws me back for sure.
0: I loved how you use the word kindness too. We could think of God just sort of smacking our hands and saying, look at me, look, look at me, you know, pay yeah. attention, but just that, you know, and sometimes he does rebuke us to bring us back, but you have that assurance of knowing it's because he loves us, that he wants what's good. Uh, he wants to draw us in, in order to bless us, not to harm us. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. What, what did you think, Mallory.
2: So thinking about this question, I thought of a couple examples in my life. And and the first was in the early years of my marriage, I found it really hard when Josh and I would have confrontation, when I would see his sin and he would see my sin or we would sin against each other. I definitely came into marriage a perfectionist. Um, And so I found it hard to move on um, from the confrontation. But the love Josh showed me, and how he was able to forgive me. He still wanted to spend time with me. It was such a picture of Christ's love. And I think that's exactly how Christ is. He sees our sin, he forgives us, and he still wants to be with us. Um, So it's just such a picture of his love for me, and then just helped me understand the freedom and forgiveness we experience in Christ's death and resurrection. And the idea that Jesus still longs to have a relationship with me. I was able to regain my assurance of the promise that the Lord is my God and I'm his. And here in Acts, in Stephen's speech, he refers to the idols that, um, that the Israelites built a calf and how it was this idol they built and how Moses, he served as a mediator for their sin. And I love how George Robertson talks about how um, now Jesus is our mediator. And in sin, God deals with our sin by sending Jesus to carry our sin for us and plead for us. And in Exodus 34, 6, it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And that's exactly who our God is to us. And the other example I thought about in my life was just this year at the beginning of the school year. I was so hopeful that this school year would look normal last year, you know, with COVID, I was hopeful that when this year started, that a lot of the things that were different about last year would be more normal this year. And so I very quickly got discouraged. And so even though the Lord had provided over and over again last year during COVID, I very quickly forgot what the Lord had done, just like the Israelites, and allowed myself to become discouraged instead of trusting God. But even in my sin, the Lord was faithful and he again provided opportunities this year to be with Jackson at school and gave me reminders that Jackson is his. So I was able to regain my assurance of faith, not because of something I did, but because of God's faithfulness to me.
0: I love how both of y'all get a clear vision or you are aware of your own sin that you recognize hinders um, what you want to experience with the Lord, whether that would be how can the Lord forgive? You know, my definition of forgiveness is we got it all perfect. We made it right. This, that and the other. And now we're back on good terms. But for Josh to show you, no, we haven't fully worked it out. We haven't fully made it right. And yet I want to be with you. I want to be close to you. I accept you. I move towards you in that changes your idea of who the Lord is in regards to your sin and gives you that assurance that though my sin might do this, the Lord does this. And the same with you, and though my sin might cause me to look over here for all these other things and find my gratification, satisf- satisfaction in those, the kindness of the Lord comes after me, even when I'm going looking for something else. And so our view of our sin becomes clear and our view of who God is becomes clear. And really in Stephen's, I guess you could call it a sermon, but at least what he's telling to these religious leaders, he really does such a magnificent job of capturing the weakness of humanity and the covenantal love of God, even in Moses, who they would have revered. But just how Moses who he was, the sin in his own life, how long he waited, his weaknesses, how he was rejected, all sorts of things like that. And the Lord moved through all of that. He brings in the lives of the patriarchs and Joseph and Abraham. And you can't get to the end of that sermon without realizing all of those men were weak. They were in need. And yet the Lord chose them Uh, captured them, called them, and moved through them in these powerful ways. And it gives you that sense of hope that the Lord can do the same in me. You could say, suppose, and some people may say, you know what? If the Lord continues to move towards us and to do great redemptive works in our lives, despite our sin, well, then let's just sin and enjoy that. And the Lord will still do good things. And at the end, it will all pan out. What is so dangerous about that sort of statement or philosophy.
2: So initially, when I read this question, I was thinking, of course, like, why would I want to sin because of what God's done for me and continues to do? But the reality is that I probably don't take my sin seriously enough. Um, and I love that at First Pres we kneel before the Lord on Sundays and confess our sin. And in thinking about this question, I realized I probably don't do that regularly enough. And so it also, this question makes me think about the impact of sin on, on my life and those around me. Deuteronomy 12, 28 says, be careful to obey all these regulations I'm giving you so that it may always go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord. So that sin does have an impact on those around me. But also I think about the impact that it could have on my children and then their desire to follow Jesus too. So it would be the
0: misunderstanding that because the Lord works through sin, he doesn't hate sin or take sin seriously, or sin's not really much of a problem, but to say sin is a very large problem and how it affects my family and how the Lord views it in those sorts of ways. And and if I don't take that seriously, then I'm misunderstanding who God is and how he's um, allowed things to work in a fallen world. Yeah. What'd you think, Anne?
1: I started thinking about if, if I am so casual with this thought that I can keep sinning, and but I'll go to heaven anyway. Number one, I've not stood at the cross and watched Jesus die for me. And the, what it took to take away my sin, the suffering, the one of these questions was, what, what is it you fear the most? And, and automatically I just wrote down, I fear facing evil alone, however that would look like. Jesus did that. I'll never have to face evil alone because Jesus is my Savior. He's with me. So I, that's a scary, scary way to live that um, it's huge self love. Huge self love to think I can do what I want to and then get what I want, also. That doesn't work that way. Um, yes, the Bible says that the pleasures of sin are there, but they are fleeting. And I am old enough to look back and see the pleasures of sin are fleeting, but you know, the payment of sin is not. And those that have given their lives to habitual sin, they are to be pitied, whether or not they're in God's family or not. Sin has awful payment. It, it is a cruel, cruel master. And our Lord is such a kind and gentle master. I have our daughter in our home this week, and I watch her. Be a mother for the first time, a little toddler. And I think, what if that little girl would look at her mama and say, How how can I be bad enough? I know you'll never unmother me, but no, it's it's the mother's love that brings out love in that little tiny daughter. And it should be that way with my Heavenly Father. I know his love, it should bring out love in me
0: was very well said. Well, I'm just I love how you express things and how you capture with words things that are so tender. And that is one of those things right there, and your description of that, and how you landed saying, Love should draw out of me love and response. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was thinking, too, just that if I have no love or gratitude, uh, for what has been done for me or given to me that I maybe I have not even received the thing that has been done. And I'm not saying that I, I want to go around always questioning my assurance every time I have dull emotions or a tendency to sin. It's not that at all. But I, I was struck by in, in George's um, sermon notes in our Bible study, just how he, he will say to people who say, you know what, it's gonna be fine. I'm going to continue on in this adultery. I'm going to continue doing this there or the other because I know I belong to the Lord and eventually it will be fine. And he just says, I look at him and say, you have no assurance of salvation. You cannot have an assurance of salvation if you are in consistent pursuit of sin. And I think that's where the rub lies. Of course, we all want to sin still at times. We still desire it. We still sin, we still repent. But if our ultimate aim is to just get what we want and use Christ as sort of a fallback, then we haven't really received what Christ has to give. And when he grants us the blessing of knowing what we've received, then love flows out as a response. And our obedience then is motivated by love. You know, the, the men that Stephen are, is talking to in this sermon they would have been religiously moral. Um, they would have delighted themselves in a very particular type of obedience, but it was a self-centered type of obedience. It was an obedience to their idea of the law. Uh, it was a self-righteous sort of obedience. And so they had a very, they were very much opposed to the idea that they needed salvation. They had found that themselves in their self-righteousness. So when, Stephen recounts this redemptive history. And at the very end of it says, you're just like all of these broken people in redemptive history who have gone away from the Lord, who have killed the prophets, who have spurned that salvation. This is you. They can't hear that. They don't want to hear that. And so they stone him. They don't want to see that their self-righteousness is actually their guilt. And when Stephen's being stoned, it says that he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, this beautiful picture. I want us to talk a little bit about what is so magnificent about that view that Stephen had, that the Lord would give that to him, that he would put that in his sights as he was dying. And how does that, pondering what Stephen saw, how does that help you to maybe take your eyes off of your own self-righteousness? You know, when, when those religious leaders heard Stephen say, this is what I see, I see this, they literally put their hands over their ears and started shouting as loud as they could. It was so repulsive to them, this message, this vision of grace that Stephen was seeing and communicating. What about it? That beautiful picture not, doesn't cause you to react with revulsion, but in love causes you to center your eyes on Christ. As I read those verses, I was really struck by,
1: well, first, comically, it said his face looked like the face of an angel. And in, in the Bible, when people see angels, they're That's afraid. Yeah. It's, it's frightening. I thought, you know what? I get to spend an afternoon with Stephen one day. I cannot wait. I just have questions to ask him. That's, that's one of them. What does the face of an angel look like? But as he saw the Lord Jesus, and that's what made, I believe, these brothers and fathers, as he called them, so enraged, so angry. Their self-righteousness prevented them from seeing Jesus they missed him completely and they were so angry at stephen for saying that jesus is the son of god of course that would be so wrong if if it were not the truth and so i really think that's the secret of the christian life is keeping your gaze on the lord jesus and just the wonder of him and the beauty of Him, and that is what gets us through persecutions or discouragement or even the dullness of of life, is that to be in love with the Lord Jesus, always be watching for Him, always be talking Mm -hmm. with Him. Mm
0: What do you think, Mallory?
2: So the first part of that question, what is so amazing about what Stephen saw? I had a few thoughts. First, as Anne was saying, just that he sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And I thought about in Mark 14:62 how when Jesus is arrested, he's also standing before the Sanhedrin and he says, "I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven." So there's this fulfillment that Jesus is now standing next to the father. So just seeing the glory of God and what that must've been like. Then the assurance of faith that gave Stephen, he's about to become the first martyr. And that that gives Stephen that hope and assurance of faith. And we um, just studied um, Acts one with Bible study and in Jesus and his kindness in Acts one, he appears to the apostle over a period of 40 days with many convincing proofs. And it's like in Jesus's kindness, He knew that that is what the apostles would need just for that assurance of faith. And so just for Stephen, then just in his kindness too, just his presence and nearness to Stephen during those difficult circumstances. And then the second part of that question, how does it rip my eyes off my attempts at self-righteousness to fix them on Jesus and things above? There's definitely been moments in my parenting where I tried to do it on my own. Um, out of my own strength or limited wisdom. And I was reminded very quickly that I cannot do this alone, that I need a Savior, that I can't save my children, that only Jesus can do that, Um, and that we're both in need of a Savior. And how easy it is to judge um, how I'm doing as a mom based on my children's behavior, outward behavior, or their achievements, and how we're so easily distracted by those things that matter the least versus the things that matter the most. And Recently, I studied Elijah and Priscilla Shear says in that study, as we intentionally present a living sacrifice of our whole selves to God, we invite the fire of God's presence to consume us. So just in that idea of dying to myself and, and humbling myself and acknowledging that self-righteousness, that sin, those idols and laying them down at Jesus's feet, I'm really just inviting the power of the spirit to, to work in and through me. And so on a daily basis for me, this might just be look like you know, stopping and praying and asking the Spirit to fill me and asking the Lord for patience or strength or wisdom and then just seeing the Lord's provision in those moments. Absolutely. When you think about Jesus
0: seated at the right hand of God, it's that work accomplished. All that he came to do, he is seated at the right hand of God and his enemies are underneath his feet. So in one sense, what Stephen sees is the completed promise, redemptive work of Christ assured to him, which is glorious. And yet the slight difference is that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God as if to honor Stephen and what Stephen is, is doing at the moment, what Stephen is proclaiming with his words, with his life, with his death that Jesus is honoring that. And I think if you think, oh my goodness, that Jesus would stand in honor because Stephen is operating out of all that Jesus has given him. And I think if you think about it that way, self-righteousness just can't compare. It cannot measure up. What I bring on my own is nothing compared to what I can bring in light of what Christ has given me. You know, I think about that scene in Lord of the Rings. If you've watched that trilogy, it's about these tiny little hobbits who have no strength of their own, no means of their own, no... Um, any whatever you would think you'd need for a large adventure. They don't really have it. But what they have is faithfulness and love. And they have companions who have great power, great strength, great wisdom, kings and wizards and warriors. and, And these people rally around these little bitty people to help accomplish this redemptive plan in the story. And at the end, all of these great men, wizards, warriors, they bow down in honor of what these little people have done simply by faith and connection to their relationship with them, moving forward in what everybody else has provided for them. And they stand there and and you can tell, they think, what are you doing bowing to us? And in a much grander way. There's nothing we have done that would cause Christ just in ourselves to stand and honor us, but that he gives us a grace that he gives us all those things that we lack. And then simply by our relationship with him, what we do, he stands and honors that. I think, Lord, if I could fix my eyes on that, that would change uh, the way I operate. Yes. It would change the way I operate. And then I love that. It says, and then Stephen
1: fell asleep. Mm. Sometimes falling asleep is the best thing that happens all day (laughs) long. It's like, (laughs) yay, I finally get to go to sleep. And what a cruel way to Mm -hmm. die. Just horrible to be injured over and over again by people that you Mm -hmm. know until your body is dead. But God's word said, he fell He fell asleep. And his last request was, Father, forgive them. Do not hold this. And you know, I'm sure this was in the, in the notes. It's not my thought. God answered that prayer. There was Saul. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And God said, okay, I will not hold this against these. Yeah. I have a plan for
0: Saul also. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? Yeah. Just, it is. It stirs your heart. It does. And next week we're talking about the unlikely conversion of Saul. And what you see there is so true that right there when Stephen died, he was standing, giving approval. And the Lord is going to get a hold of him and use that redemptive plan right through that sinful hardened heart and bring about an amazing work. And we look forward to that. Well, y'all thank you for joining me in conversation today. I enjoyed it as much as I knew I would. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And if you're listening, we're glad that you listened in. We hope you'll listen to us next week. You can take us to get your favorite cup of to-go coffee. You could take us to get a favorite lunch sandwich or run some Saturday errands. Like I've already said, we're going to be talking about unlikely conversions, being joined by Ellen Hoover and Allie Westner. If you want to see the pretty faces of our guests today, check us out on our Women's Bible Study Facebook page at Women's Bible Study FPCA or find us on Instagram at First Prez Augusta Women. We hope you listen in.